The following is a message by Dr. Stephen Baugh of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. May be seated. This is not going to be a devotional per se because I don't have a passage, but you can go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I was asked to introduce the uh, faculty series of devotions on Hebrews. So from uh, beginning next week, the faculty will be alternating with devotions from the book of Hebrews. And since I teach that in our curriculum, I was asked to introduce you to the book. For that reason, this is why I say it's not really a devotional. Maybe I'll have a happy thing to say later on. Uh, It is difficult not to have happy things to say about Hebrews, frankly. Uh, A a large book, 13 chapters, with um, much uh, very rich teaching However, it does get tiring for me, I have to admit. Every time I tell anybody, whether here at the seminary or out uh, off campus somewhere, that I teach Hebrews, the first thing that people invariably ask me is who wrote the book. Uh, it's, it's interesting that people are curious about things like that. And, of course, I just tell them to talk to Howell Jones because he's convinced he knows who wrote it but I figure that he probably entered into heaven to find out and came back to us. Uh, But but I don't know. We've had this running joke for years that he he thinks it's... uh, Who do you think it is? I mean, have you come to your senses yet, Hal? Oh, Barnabas. He thinks it's Barnabas. Everybody knows it's Apollos. But uh, I haven't had a vision like he has, so... uh, But the answer is, I don't know who wrote it. No one knows. And if you you think about that, you cannot know. There's nothing in scripture or really even anything extra biblical except the fact that it's placed within the epistles of Paul. Uh, So early on, it was associated with Paul, but it is not Paul. I think that's clear. And, And what I tell people in class is, If you don't know who wrote it, don't make exegesis based on who you speculate wrote the book. It's a very dangerous thing to do. As an interpreter of scripture, we're not called to base our conclusions upon speculation. Our conclusions are based upon the word of God, which can be known. Uh, And the fact that we don't know who wrote it is itself something that we base our teaching on Hebrews on. In other words, we don't know who wrote it, and we don't know who's actually receiving it exactly. And for that reason, for example, the uh, thesis of Yigal Yadin from years ago, which is picked up by some evangelicals, really shouldn't uh, be very persuasive to us. His thesis is that in Hebrews 7, the first 10 verses, where you have teaching on Melchizedek, 
he said that Hebrews is writing to an audience who were associated with a cult group in the Dead Sea area known as the Qumran sectarians. And that Hebrews is writing to them because the Qumran scrolls have some mention of Melchizedek, therefore they were devoted to Melchizedek. Uh, And so the author of Hebrews is interacting with that in chapter 7 and really trying to persuade them not to be so allied with Melchizedek. Uh, Frankly, that whole thesis is very weak, even in looking at it just within Hebrews. It's also weak today because the association of the Dead Sea Scrolls with Qumran is debated pretty fiercely in the literature. Not everybody is persuaded that uh, those people out in the Dead Sea produced those scrolls. Um, There's a lot of interesting newer literature on all that. Um, So there are just a lot of weaknesses to that whole uh, position. And so not knowing exactly who Hebrews is and to whom he's writing, you can't really make a whole interpretive arguments rest upon such weak scaffolding. It's a very uh, questionable thing to do, and it's really not our interest, um, particularly when there's so much rich stuff you can know just by looking at the book and exegeting it pretty carefully. Now, I do, as I mentioned, think that it is not Paul, and that's not based on speculation. It's simply based on looking at Paul and looking at Hebrews and noticing things that in antiquity mattered to people. Uh, And in particular, more recently, I've been doing work in this area. Some of you have been hearing some bits and pieces on that. I'll be talking about it more as time goes on here. But uh, one of the things that antiquity marked author's style was meter, was the, the rhythms of the discourse. And it even got down to what words you put together because they would have sounds that blended together in a nice way that were, that were appropriate to the ear. Or in sounds that were harsh when you put them together or caused uh, pausing in a in a wrong place, for example. This sounds all rather abstract, but to uh, people who from their earliest time were educated in how to speak well and therefore trained also in listening, uh, these are things that mattered with style. And when you analyze Paul's style, he's sort of a rough uh, writer, even at times when he's being very elegant if that makes any sense. He's being rough in an ancient sense. This is exactly what he tells the Corinthians. I'm not a pretty speaker. I'm not here to tickle your ears with the pretty kind of speeches where I'm so concerned with word order that I don't have my news clashing with my peas, which is one thing that they really didn't like, a new followed by a pea. See, there's a pause there. They don't like that sound unless it's an appropriate pause place. Paul puts them together in the wrong places. But you see, the pretty speakers were concerned even about that. Now, Hebrews has some of those kind of rough things, but far fewer. And there are times when you can tell he arranges his word order or even uses a tense form. For example, he uses a, a present tense infinitive instead of an aorist tense of an infinitive because of how it sounded. Now, Paul never does that but Hebrews does. These are the kinds of things that an ancient person would be attuned to and say, oh, well, that's definitely a Paul. Uh, You don't read that in the modern literature much because they're not ancient like me. 
Uh, <laughs> but, you know, some of those old guys are my best friends. They may be dead, but you can still read them. Um, so the fact that this is not Paul is interesting and important for us. For example, Hebrews 11 and that whole business of faith and what it is. I think it's a mistake to read that as Pauline faith throughout. He's really talking about faith of the Old Testament saints as they testify to us. The fact that they believed showed that they apprehended a demonstration in their own lives of the revelation of God of the reality of Christ. They believed in Christ in their day. Abraham believed in Christ. Isaac believed in Christ. Moses professed Christ. And that's exactly what Hebrews says later, isn't it? He preferred the reproach of Christ to the wealth of Egypt because he saw Christ's reproach in his lifetime through the revelation of God in the circumstances, in the oppression of the people of God. He saw Christ there. And that's what faith does. It gives you clarity of insight and testimony from God of the realities he's going to bring in with Christ. And this is is really a major interest of the author to the Hebrews. Uh, But Paul really doesn't do it that way. He's talking about your faith as it justifies you by bringing you into union with Christ and, and and uh, you have the transferal of his righteousness to you, your sin to him, you know, the whole imputation uh, complex. This is, this is Paul. It's a little different. But interestingly enough, in Hebrews, you have an awareness of Paul's concepts, and he does communicate that. For example, when you look at Noah in Hebrews 11, it says that Noah died in accordance with the, or he saw his, um, well, I'm going to quote it. Just, I told you I wasn't even going to look at the Bible, but I guess we should. Now, let me just read it here. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw nearer to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. See, he sees the salvation of the household of God in the events where he saves his household. So he sees Christ there, and there's testimony, and then he bears testimony to us as one of the cloud of witnesses. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That last phrase is the one that really is right out of Paul the righteousness which is according to faith. You see, it's a righteousness that is by faith, and he became an heir of it. Now, you inherit something that's future. Noah became an heir of the righteousness of faith because it hadn't been accomplished in Christ yet. Christ, in his human nature, had not lived the human life to win our justification yet. But Noah became an heir of that righteousness And it was in accordance with faith because he hadn't seen it yet. But he saw it by faith, received the testimony. Now, this is the sort of thing that the faculty are going to be wanting to bring to you when they look at a passage like that. And it really gets to the few things that I want to tell you to prepare you for Hebrews. And that is this, really a couple of things here. One, Hebrews is an oral presentation. I think you heard that earlier. 
You know, Hebrews is, is somewhat interested in how his hearers will hear the book. Uh, this is just normal. In antiquity, you hear books. You don't read them silently to yourself. You hear them. And so you should think of Hebrews as you are reading through it. Read through bigger chunks and start hearing it. Particularly, you know, as you become more uh, adept at Greek, start hearing it in Greek. You'll find some marvelous features to it. You'll find some alliteration. You'll find some wordplay. You'll find some interesting word order. Uh, You'll find particularly places where you take a breath in Hebrews are notable. Let me, let me point that out, going back to Hebrews 1 now. Let me just point this out. Now, this is just my analysis. And even in antiquity, someone who had never heard a work presented was, in a sense, guessing at how it should be presented and divided. And they acknowledge that. You know, there's no infallible way of figuring it out because in antiquity, unless... Uh, someone is using a, a manuscript for their own presentation, they don't put marks or spacing in there to tell you when to take a breath. But there were sort of conventions, part of its rhythm, part of its length, part of its just uh, pausing and such. But here is how Hebrews 1, 1 through 5 goes. And one of the things you note, particularly with Hebrews, is whoever did the verses... And there is some tradition, even though a fellow named Stephanus did the final form of it, uh, didn't really track what Hebrews is doing. So if you're working through Hebrews, you basically ignore verse numbers. Uh, so Hebrews, the first section, goes from 1 1 to the middle of verse 2. And here's what you hear uh, in various, well, I won't even render it here. Another thing we're going to say in a moment. Um, But it opens with the fact that God spoke in great detail in the past. And this section before taking a breath ends with, he spoke to us and we owe in the sun. Um, And so the place of focus is the beginning and the end of that. If you're dividing this text by verses, you tend to think of verses as a unified chunk. Forget that with Hebrews, is what I'm telling you. Start looking at Hebrews as an ancient person would. It opens and then it ends with, he spoke to us in the sun. The next section says, whom he he has appointed as heir of all things, it ends with, and is the stamp of his very being. Very interesting ways to open and close. It focuses on the Son, God, and he is the very being of God. And those are the places of real focus. Then it opens, he bears all things with the word of his power. He sat down on the majesty on high. Now notice how I sort of pause there, on high. This is what Hebrews does. He actually says things where he pauses before completing the section. I won't get into it anymore. This, it, this may seem rather abstract to you in isolation. But when you're working through Hebrews, start getting a sense for the beauty and the flow of this book. 
it really flows from beginning to the middle of chapter 13 as one unified piece. And that's the second thing I want to tell you. This is a book that you can't interpret one little bit in isolation from the whole. Now, Paul, you can do some of that when he talks about different topics. And he'll bring up things, well, you asked about this, here's what I say on that. Uh, And then you just have this collection of different things because he's answering questions. Hebrews is not. He's working with one thing throughout. He's working an appeal to a Christian group who are considering returning or turning to Judaism, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. He's persuading them of Christ's unique uh, person and work from Scripture. Uh, And he's warning them of the dire consequences of apostasy by encouraging them to persevere in faith. And because of that, it's a unified piece with that in mind throughout. So there is a warning of the most dire sort with encouragement. Uh, And these striking uh, things he says are to encourage them. This is the thing that, about Hebrews that if you focus on chapters 6 and 10, where he gives these really dire warnings, you all know those sections, and sometimes they're sort of fearful for you. They shouldn't be because they're surrounded by the fact that if you believe in Christ, you have an anchor for your soul which penetrates into the inner veil. You have a surety of your salvation based on God's oath. God's life is what undergirds the certainty of your salvation. He has taken an oath that Christ's high priestly ministry is satisfying to him. If you believe in Christ, his ministry for you, Christ's, both of atonement and intercession on your behalf, must be effective. It must be effective in the same way that God must live. Because God said, may I die if this is not true. He took an oath. He didn't have to, chapter 6. But he added an oath. His word is sufficient, but he added an oath for our certainty. And Hebrews is replete with this wonderful stuff. This is a glorious book full of comfort and encouragement and strength of faith. And a warning not to turn away. And that's the third thing I want to tell you. This is such a marvelous model for us if you're dealing with someone weak of faith or someone contemplating some stupidity of turning from Christ because that's all it can be. And people do all the time because of the vagarities of sin and the enticement of sin, as Hebrews says. People are tempted to apostatize for various reasons. And our temptation is to go in there with a bulldozer and run them over a big Bible bulldozer, right? And just whack them with the thing till they submit. Submit to, you know, you stupid person. <laughs> Look what Hebrews does. A tender, warm, truly loving appeal to them, full of the comfort of the gospel. He says, how can you do this with so great a salvation offered to us in Christ. Look at who he is. Uh, I won't belabor this because you just read the book. But he holds, he holds Christ before us and says, look at who he is. 
And if you look at Christ there's, and know who he is and what he's done for us and who he is now for us, there's no way you can be tempted to abandon him because he's glory. And that's what Hebrews does. And what a marvelous model for us that is. Well, the last thing, this is the conclusion. Part of what you're going to hear in Hebrews as this unfolds this semester for you is it's interesting how in the Psalm 100, this glorious song calling us to come before the Lord, to enter into the gates and into the courtyards and stop. Notice in the Psalm 100, we have to stop in the courtyards. We can't go any further into the temple. Here's the exhortation to Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the household of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In Christ Jesus, we don't stop in the courtyard. We penetrate through the holy places. We go by the altar because it's, uh, it's now obsoleted by Jesus. And we march boldly through the curtain dividing us from the Holy of Holies where God himself dwells, and in Christ we go right in, in full confidence of faith, because our Savior is there as the anchor for our soul. Let's pray. Father, we have given us a marvelous and a beautiful book. In fact, the whole scripture is beautiful and full of glory. We do pray that you'll bless us this semester as we reflect upon the beauties of the gospel in this uh, Hebrews and in the other passages that we'll hear through our devotion time make our studies in all of our all of our uh, day uh, edifying to us and giving glory to you we pray that you'll help us O Lord to deepen in our faith and our ability to praise and glorify you day by day pray this in Jesus name amen Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.